It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. I think that you're going to love hearing about this new illuminating book that is a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal. If you believe in God, then then God created uh, life in her own form, you know, because actually, yes, there are a number of scientists who maintain that that actually the very first life on Earth would have been an egg maker, would have would have reproduced by cloning and, and therefore by definition it was females and, and males only arrived at the onset of sexual reproduction. But before we come to that, I wanted to say congratulations to all the campaigners, including everyone in the Clan Project and Maeve O'Rourke, who we've had on this podcast, and all the survivors, most importantly, of Magdalene Laundries and other institutions for their perseverance in trying to get a memorial sanctioned in the former Magdalene home in Sean McDermott Street in the north inner city of Dublin. News this week that that site is now going to be developed as a site of remembrance and research to the victims and survivors of Ireland's institutional past. Gary Gannon, TD, is one of the people who campaigned. He said this week it's a victory for survivors and for those who believed in a place for truth. And I think it's going to be so important as a place for future generations to visit and reflect on how badly young women and girls were failed by the state and the church, sometimes for decades and decades. And as we know, it's only relatively recently when the last one closed. It's been a very long time coming and it's a really positive step that was announced this week by Minister Roderick O'Gorman. And of course, I just want to say that I hope whatever is developed there is done in close consultation with survivors because this is their lives. These are their stories. And in many ways, their rights have still not been properly vindicated. They're still fighting for a lot of things. Um, when you just think of the controversy around the Mother and Baby Home Commission report and about the redress scheme, which certainly does not go far enough. But I do think this is positive news and this is going to be a site of conscience and remembering. And it means that we can all learn and in the future, school children can learn from and honour these women who were treated so cruelly and hopefully make sure that those horrors are never repeated. Now, today's episode is about a book that's called Bitch. It's a controversial title, but a kind of perfect one, as you will see. The book is written by Lucy Cook. She's an award-winning broadcaster and documentary filmmaker. She's got a master's in zoology from the University of Oxford, where she was tutored by Richard Dawkins. She used to work in comedy. You might have uh, seen her work on The Fast Show or Reeves and Mortimer. Then she went into documentaries and she left a high paying job to spend six months travelling around South America by herself in an attempt to understand why amphibians were going extinct, calling herself the Amphibian Avenger. Now, joining Lucy today, we had Aina Nilauna and she's been on this podcast before and she's always a dream to have on. She's a biologist, an environmental consultant, TV and radio presenter. And uh, she 
was the perfect person to talk about Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal, which it just basically demonstrates how female animals have been misrepresented by science and indeed how scientists have been culturally conditioned to interpret the world within a framework of understanding that is deeply ingrained in patriarchal views. And that idea that alpha males dominate and everyone else is submissive, but is not the case in the animal world. So Bitch, as I said, it's groundbreaking. It demonstrates how the female of the species was marginalised and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy. It turns out, surprise, surprise, that we have a history of getting female animals very wrong Indeed. Um, Lucy Cook is on a mission to rebrand the animal kingdom with facts, not sentiment. And I know that you are really going to enjoy this fascinating conversation between Lucy, Aina and myself. I hope you enjoy. Well, I'm going to start off by reading a little bit of Bitch, which I have to say is one of my favourite book titles in a long time. It's from the introduction. And it says a sexist mythology has been baked into biology and it distorts the way we perceive female animals. In the natural world, female form and role varies widely to encompass a fascinating spectrum of anatomics and behaviours. Yes, the doting mother is among them, but so is the jacana bird that abandons her eggs and leaves them to a harem of cuckolded males to raise. Females can be faithful, but only 7% of species are sexually monogamous, which leaves a lot of philanthropy Andering females seeking sex with multiple partners. Not all animal societies are dominated by males by any means. Alpha females have evolved across a variety of classes and their authority ranges from benevolent bonobos to brutal bees. Females can compete with each other as viciously as males. Topi antelope engage in fierce battles with huge horns for access to the best males and meerkat matriarchs are the most murderous mammals on the planet, killing their competitors' babies and suppressing their reproduction. Then there are the femme fatales, cannibalistic female spiders that consume their lovers as post or even pre-coital snacks and lesbian lizards that have lost the need for males altogether and reproduce solely by cloning. In the last few decades, there's been a revolution in our understanding of what it means to be female. And this book is about that revolution. It's called Bitch and Lucy Cook, you wrote it and I'm in awe of you because it's incredible. Tell me about the genesis of it all. Oh, Roisin, I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Thank you so much for for reading that out and and inviting me on the show. So um, I wrote the book because I studied evolutionary biology myself. I was taught by the great Richard Dawkins, in fact. And I was taught by him that males were dominant and that they were the the evolutionary, they were the drivers of change and that females were passive and coy and monogamous. And this dates back to Darwin and this is the standard script. And it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. You know, I didn't I didn't feel I could see my reflection <laughs> or that of any of my the females that I knew in this sort of 1950s sitcom of, of sex roles. So I uh, I thought I'd investigate whether it was really true. And, and thankfully, it isn't. We're not doomed to play second fiddle to males for all eternity. Mm. 
You might tell us a little bit more about Darwin because, I mean, we all know all the dodgy things about him, but he was also... And Aina, you've already got your hand up. Come in. Before you start into Darwin, I wanted to know why you called it bitch because most of the female nouns for, for um, animals are coy, like you have a cow, you're an old cow, you're an old sow, you're an old... You know, they're all... But the, the only ones that have a name that really show that women are counting are foxes and dogs. So if somebody's a vixen, you don't argue with them. And if somebody's a bitch, you don't take them on. But everything else, I mean, you call someone an old heifer or an old cow and it's a passive term. It's a yo, you're a sheep, you're docile, docile, docile. So I just wondered how, how bitch and vixen got to have such wonderful names when all the other female animals have all these passive things. Did you ever think of that? That's a brilliant thought. I've never, I did, that didn't occur to me that we've given female animals all these, all these passive labels. It totally fits in with my argument. And, um, and I didn't know that. So that, that's really fantastic. Thanks for pointing that out. But I, I chose the title because I'm sort of trying to reclaim the word, really, because, you know, lots of females, it's a derogatory term, isn't it? I believe it's even a swear word, bitch, you know. But, you know, actually, a lot of the females in my book would probably be described as bitches you know maybe the that the 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 sexually cannibalistic spider for example might be considered a bit of a bitch for eating her her lover um before before or even after sex but but the fact is is that in many of these cases these females that that you might think of as being bitches are actually being assiduously maternal that's that they're just they're just looking after the kids you know so so i think it's it's high time that we we reclaim that word. But I like your angle on it, though, uh, uh, Aina. I like the fact that you pointed out that it's an active word rather than, than these sort of passive stereotypes that are thought of as being docile. Lucy, when you do the next publication, because it's going to sell out and they'll need to reprint, you can add a little chapter at the end with that uh, <laughs> point and name all the other uh, more passively named females. But let's get back to Darwin, because is he to blame for all of this? I mean, this kind of idea of passive female, you know, aggressive male very much stems from him. And I know you're a fan of his, despite all of his very dodgy past. But tell us a bit about him and your relationship with him through the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually, you know, obviously Darwin's a hero of mine. I'm an evolutionary biologist and and uh, his theory of evolution by natural selection is is one of the greatest theories in, in all of science, you know. But I think what's fascinating about about Darwin's stories, he really was, he's an exemplary scientist, but he was a man of his time. And I think that, you know, what's really fascinating to me is, is really the insidious nature of cultural bias, that even someone as brilliant as Darwin, I mean, who's a truly superb scientist, incredibly meticulous and, and methodical in his work, he, he, he was, you know, he was influenced by the, 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 the contemporary thinking and, and branded the female in the shape of a Victorian housewife. When I don't think, you know, he, the data he had in front of him didn't tell him that, but yet he was compelled to say that. And I think there's a real less, a warning in that, you know, for science, you know, today and for science, for all science, all zoologists that, and I, and I think zoology is particularly vulnerable to this because you're dealing with animals, you know, we're animals and you're sort of looking for your reflection in there. And the, the easy thing to do is to project what you want to see or, or to work within the framework that you understand. And and really, I think we have to sort of expand our minds, you know, to, to expect the unexpected. Mm. I don't think you're being fair to Darwin, actually. 
I think you're giving them a bad rap in a sense. I mean, there's Darwin and he comes up with, with the theory of evolution, which hadn't ever been thought of before. And the women that he knew, I mean, he was a white middle class male of Victorian England. And women in those days didn't want to get pregnant. I mean, we talk about wild females in general and they're looking for mates. They want as much sex as possible. They want to get pregnant every time. They want to use their eggs, every single one of them. Humans are completely the opposite. In Darwin's time, if you were a woman that had sex before you were married, you were a fallen woman. And after you got married, if you had sex every time you felt like it, you'd have 25 children. And where were you? There was no contraception in those days. So it's absolutely no miracle or no mystery why Darwin would know women who were reluctant to have sex because it, obviously the conditions in which the women lived in those days did not suit it. So then going from that to what he was to discover, he produced this theory of evolution and all the Sky fell on top of him. I mean, he was denounced from everywhere. But he did other research, which you refer to his barnacle research, his other research, which he published privately. And he has all the right stuff in there. It's just he didn't, I mean, having got a ton of bricks down on top of himself for his evolutionary um, theory, he wasn't going to get more tons of bricks down on top of himself telling us about barnacles that had penises the size of I don't know what. I mean, all of this sort of thing. He did say, and they're in his books and they're there and you quote them all through the book. But... You're giving him a bad rap at the beginning. I think you should keep her a bad rap for Dawkins, actually. You, you don't you don't treat him too well, either your tutor. You're saying he was the one that actually told you the wrong thing in the first place. Well, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think I think Dawkins should have known better. I mean, you know, we, we were in the grips of the, the second wave of feminism at that stage. And, and I, I think his narrow viewpoint that was taught to me and 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 published in this in the selfish gene uh, that that you know female exploitation females are exploited in the animal kingdom is actually his words and that this exploitation um was was down to the fact that 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 sperm are active and mobile and lots of them are produced and and eggs are are small and uh are more expensive but um, without getting sidelined into that, just to answer your your comments about Darwin, I you know I I do I I you know I do have in the last chapter I have the redemption of Darwin and I you know I talk about his barnacle work and I say that that I think Darwin the scientist was a lot more um, liberated than Darwin the man was you know and that's because he was a Victorian man. So I, 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 you know, I, I've, I've all the way through it. I don't. I'm not ragging on Darwin. I think he's an exemplary scientist. But I think what's fascinating is how hard it is for scientists to escape cultural bias. And there's no doubt that, you know, in his branding of females as passive coy monogamous, he did a lot of damage. There is no escaping that because because Darwin said it. Scientists that followed in his wake that knew of his genius, they just suffered from confirmation bias for for you know. Um, 150 years and it's still continuing today. So, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you that Darwin was brilliant. And I don't, I, I'm not surprised that he, he said the things that he did because of the times that he was in. And I agree with you completely that he was, you know, he'd already been hugely controversial and, 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 you know, annoyed the church so much with his theory of evolution. He probably didn't feel like, you know, a second wave of controversy. But, you know, his book, The Descent of Man, does conclude that man has become superior to woman. I mean, it is incubated in misogyny and they are very bald misogynistic statements in it. You know, whether he deep down as a scientist believed in them or not, but they're there in print. And because Darwin said them, they've been hugely influential. 
You said the most shocking thing of all was actually when you went to college to study science. Like me, like any scientist, you thought that science was finding out the truth and telling it no matter what. And what you discovered was an actual fact that when people found out things through experiments that didn't suit their preconceived ideas, they just ignored them. So that the fellows who followed Darwin, who found out that, in fact, for example, your Jays weren't... um, the males weren't doing all the fighting and the carry-on and it was the females that did it. They just thought that was an aberration for the thing or the study wasn't right or something. And they conveniently dumped any research that they did that didn't prove what Darwin had said. So really, your gripe should be with the stupid scientists who weren't proper scientists, who didn't take them. I mean, you're, you meticulously speak of women who found out things that weren't uh, accepted and they did the research four or five times to repeated it and repeated it. Whereas Bateman, whose graphs are still in it, every book. His work was repeated and found to be wrong, but people couldn't bear to think that Bateman was wrong and they're still going around talking about how females and males behave. So I think that's the shocking thing, that there are scientists purporting to be scientists who are actually false. They're not being true to the fact that if when you find out something in science, the truth will out. And that's, I think, though, the, the most shocking part of your book, really. I agree. But I mean, I'd trace that. I'd say that that's a long line of that. That's that's cultural bias starting with Darwin and, and then carrying on through the ages, really. It's it's the same thing. I mean, and that really shocked me. You know, I mean, I studied science at Oxford University. I, I, I couldn't believe that sexism could, that people's cultural opinions could, could infect the, the science that I loved so much. And, and, and yeah, absolutely. And, the, and the, that bias damages in so many ways. I mean, the women, not, there's not just women, female scientists in my book, there's lots of men in there as well. But you're absolutely right. In many cases, when they have disagreed with these stereotypes, they've had to sort of jump up and down and scream and they've been told that they're wrong and you know the struggle that they've had to go through in order to have their their opinions accepted is is also quite astonishing and is 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 not really a, a sort of a fair scientific debate one feels well Anna, let's get on to what you loved about the book and the things that maybe you found out or you knew already that you thought Lucy um sort of explored very well. What what were some of your highlights of bitch? I'm going to keep saying bitch. I just love that word. I like the reclamation of it, you know. (laughs) Well, I thought it was very interesting that sex is relatively recent. I mean, the world is actually 4.5 billion years old. That's four and a half thousand million years old. We've had life there maybe for 3.5 billion years. But you're saying sex really only began half a billion years ago, 500 million years, give or take a few million. Before that, all life cloned. You just split in half and then there were two of you. And therefore, in fact, Adam was not Adam. He was Eve. The, the, The first life on earth were female, they were female, female, female and until we had sex, until we had the exchange of material between between male and female, which is what the old joke in college was, the essence of sex is the loss of genes. But I mean the idea was that, that the male was actually derived from the female. She was there before, she was doing the cloning and now suddenly this other thing evolved and the male came from the female. So not only are you taking on Darwin and Dawkins, but you're taking on the Bible itself. (laughs) 
you know, this is terrible, Lucy. You must explain yourself. <laughs> I know, I know. In my in my version, um, it, it, yeah, exactly. If you believe in God, then then God created uh, life in her own form, you know, because actually, yes, there are a number of scientists who maintain that that actually the very first life on Earth would have been an egg maker, would have would have reproduced by cloning, and and therefore by definition. It was females and, and males only arrived at the onset of sexual reproduction. I mean, I didn't know this. I discovered this as I was researching the book. And obviously, I was completely delighted to find it out. I mean, what woman wouldn't love to hear that they're the original sex? And what's really fascinating, I spoke to this scientist, um, David Cruz in the States, and he found, uh, so he went looking for sort of evidence of this and um you know because you know if, if females were the original sex and males evolved out of the female form then there should be sort of traces of femaleness in all males and absolutely there are so he looked at um mollusks which is sort of a, a you know a very uh you know early early break on the evolutionary line and found estrogen receptors were actually the oldest of the um of the sort of gen- of these transcription factors, and so actually they 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 emerged long before testosterone did, and that was sort of evidence that that supports this. And and of course males really you know need estrogen. This is another of these kind of myths: is the idea that testosterone is a solely male hormone and estrogen is is female. Well, males can't produce sperm without estrogen. So, and that's a hangover from the fact that all life started as female. And I just I just think that's mind-blowing. Another highlight, I mean, thing is full of highlights, but, you know, you're talking about what what is a male and what is a female, what determines sex. And, like, long ago, when I was in college, me and Finn McCool, way back in the 1970s, you know, you had you had chromosomal sex. You had different chromosomes. You had, in some species, the female has two the same and there's a male which is different. In other species, it's the other way around. But, I know there's other names, but we're talking really essentially about chromosomal sex, about X and Y chromosomes. But in fact, you at great, in quote, great detail to say that there's actually five types of sex, that sex is controlled not only by your chromosomes, but by your gonads, by your hormones, morphologically and behaviourally. And as a consequence, there's a complete spectrum from maleness to femaleness, that there's no such thing as that's a female, that's a male, and there the twain shall meet, which, of course, gives a huge, you know, insight into human behaviour nowadays and the way people have all sorts of um, manifestations of male and female, that it's not just whatever chromosomes your cells produce. There's a whole lot of other things. And you give examples of things like turtles, that because if it's warm enough, the, the babies they lay become one sex rather than the other. And the, and the most awful thing you say is that, in fact, in was it five and a half million years time or some small time like this, there'll be no more Y chromosomes in humans. They'll be gone. They're getting smaller by the minute. They'll soon be gone and we won't need them at all. Would you care to elaborate on any of this? Yes, I would. I, I mean, I found that really fascinating, the, 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 the genetics of sex, because, you know, I, I studied genetics as you know part of my zoology degree and and I had this sort of naive assumption that you know females are xx and males are xy and that the genes that make a male would be sort of neatly on the y chromosome and the genes that make a female would be neatly on the x in this sort of ordered gendered fashion it turns out that's absolutely not the case I mean I spoke to this fantastic scientist uh, Jenny Graves who's an Australian who's 
who's decoded the the sex chromosomes of pretty much every animal you can think of, from the platypus to the nematode worm. And, and she's an absolute authority on this. And what she told me really blew my mind, which is that basically the, the, the genes that differentiate the sexes and so basically make a testes or make an ovary, they're, they're triggered by different things in nature. So sometimes they're triggered by temperature or the environment. Sometimes they're triggered by an actual gene, as in the case of humans, it's the, the, the SRY gene. But then the genes that do the job of making the ovary or making the testes there's 60 odd genes. They're the same in males and females. They're the same genes. I just, I actually had to, David Cruz told me that. And then I sort of like was like, that can't be true. Then I got in touch with Jenny Graves and I was like, really? You know, do you mind me? Then I had to ask her twice. I had to call her twice to ask her because I couldn't believe it. And so these, this idea of these two pathways to becoming male and female that we think of as being these very separate linear pathways, she explained to me in great detail are actually in enmeshed. And although there's one pathway that goes to make a female, it's also suppressing a male at the same time. And all of these processes are entangled so that the slightest tweak makes, creates variation. And so, of course, you know, this is why sex is so plastic. It's, it's like, you know, it's plastic like any trait. And of course, we need the variation because if you don't have variation, you don't have evolution. It's the it's the grit that drives evolution forward. So so the reason why this this system seems so sort of chaotic and creates these all these wonderful different variants is because you need that because otherwise evolution's got nothing to work on. And I thought a great example of that is they've just recently decoded the genome of the common garden mole, which I'm sure lots of of, of the uh, the listeners will 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 be very familiar with the common garden mole there's from ruining their lawns. There's none in Ireland. You got no moles in Ireland. You got no moles. There's no moles. There's a new one for you now. We've no moles in Ireland. Never had. Never will. That, well, I mean, that's amazing. All right. Well, you slightly you're slightly missing out because the mole is an amazing creature. Because it turns out digging for a living is like really really hard work, and the female mole has um actually has basically testicles you know she, her, her her ovaries are described as ovo testes so they have ovarian tissue at one end and testicular tissue at the other and outside of the breeding season the testicular tissue swells and it's much bigger it dwarfs the ovarian tissue and if this I do apologize if this is a little graphic but her vagina actually seals up and so she's pumped full of testosterone it makes her a really really powerful digger and you know, so that's because these 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 genes that make the male and female are, are the same genes and these processes are entwined. And so these little tweaks allow the mole to evolve because that's what's needed in the case of, of if you live underground and you have to dig for a living, you've got to have basically a pair of balls in order to do it. I shouldn't say that, but, you know, that's uh, you've got to have testicles in order to achieve that, you know. So so I think that I, I found that really fascinating. I found that in the animal kingdom, these these sort of binary definitions of all different manifestations of sex really don't apply. That, that you know, we have a very sort of um, very sort of specific way of looking at the world. You know, with with humans as an example, but actually, what you find in nature is is just all this glorious diversity. And Lucy, I just wanted to ask you, was that, I mean, you sort of allude to it in the book a bit. It's kind of challenging, isn't it? Because a lot of people have very fixed ideas about sex and there's so many conversations going on at the moment. But from reading your book, 
the sexual diversity and all the diversity, male and female within all creatures, that's what really jumped out to me. So did you find it slightly challenging or were you fully on board or did you have to, you know, process a lot of that information? That's a great question because I did find that challenging. You know, I, I was taught, you know, that, that sex was, was a very binary affair, you know, and that if you have, you produce sperm, you're a male. If you produce eggs, you're a female and females are XY, males are XX. And, you know, you'll have, for example, genetically female frogs, which then have their sex overridden by the environment and they become, actually, they, they become functioning males. But in, in all of these mixes and all these different blends, and, I, you know, it did make me sort of really sort of understand, you know, to see, to see sex in the animal kingdom as more of a spectrum. I mean, and I think Darwin himself did, actually, which is what's fascinating because, because of his work on barnacles, because... You know, he found with barnacles that um, so a lot of individuals are hermaphrodite and then you get these teeny tiny. He thought they were parasites to start off with these tiny little males that he called complemental males. And you'd find them on the hermaphrodite. And then he actually found what he he wrote to a friend and said, you're going to think this is El Diablo. This is my, my theory is, is is the devil, you know, because what he he proposed that he found was the evolution of set, hermaphrodite to separate sexes. And you know that that really just was was incredible to me and i just thought it really is you know it's it, it, what becomes incredibly hard is is where you draw the line you know and so it, it just and when you take into account that you know particularly you know for example with the 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 scientist in the states that i spoke to who studies the anemone fish and you know these are these are hermaphrodite fish that that actually change sex interestingly from from male to female and what he found is with that change, the female, they, 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 the, the, as soon as you take out the dominant female and, and the male starts to change into a female to become the dominant female, the the, the behaviour changes immediately. The, the, the fish is recognised as being female and, and behaves as a female. But the gonads can take up to a year to catch up. And, and that I thought was really fascinating because... You know, we, we know that we, we scientists don't consider animals to have gender per se because that's a social construct. But there's a sort of manifestation of that, really, in a way that the fish is behaving socially and as if it is uh, female and is being accepted as female, but its gonads are saying something different. So it makes you understand in in humans why we have this this disparity between between gender and sex and, and why it's really separate to keep them as different and how how yeah the whole the whole thing is more of a spectrum than 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 these two neat binary buckets when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, you, 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 you went on at length about the moles, which is very interesting, but we don't actually have moles here. So this is kind of something that we are being told. But we do have mallard duck here and mallard drakes. Tell us about them, because you discovered um, something very shocking about them. Now, we all know, I mean, anyone that walks along the canal and sees the mallard duck, the poor mallard duck is chased by half a dozen males and they jump on top of her and it's slam bam, thank you, ma'am. And in actual fact, sometimes they drown the duck, they're so enthusiastic. But you discovered something, two things about them. First of all, what the male has and B, what the female does to protect herself. So you tell us because it's your story. <laughs> Thank you. Well, ducks basically have two ways of, of reproducing. They, they either have like these elaborate courtship displays and the male has this fabulous plumage and they'll, they'll engage in these, you know, these wonderful courtship displays and, and, and the female will choose a male and, 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 and they, will, they will breed together. There's another type of mating that, that occurs, which is really alarming if you ever see it, which is the males can be very sexually coercive. So the males that don't get chosen will sort of gang up and they'll they'll gang up on these females. And if you've ever witnessed it, which I have, it's just this horrific thing and it's just an awful idea. And, you know, we, you know, obviously any any female that sees that behaviour just feel incredibly sorry for the for the female duck who's who's being coerced. But but at the same time, from an evolutionary perspective, she's also really losing out because she's losing the chance to choose who the father of her eggs is. And in, in the game of evolution, that is really, that's the ultimate, that's what, what females care about. Um, and, and so for a long time, we've known that males have these, male ducks have these extraordinary penises. They're like cu- long, curly-whirly corkscrews that, that are actually in some cases longer than the drake's body. Um, and it was thought for a long time that the reason why ducks had these extraordinary long penises was because the males were competing with each other in these coercive situations and the longer the penis, the winner. So it's just like it's another male-dominated idea. Well, it turns out this amazing scientist, Patricia Brennan, in the, in the States, um, was the first person to go, yeah, it's all very interesting. The duck has got an incredible penis, but but what about the female's vagina? What's going on there? Literally, no one before her had ever bothered to look. So she opens up a duck and she finds, hey, presto, the female duck has this extraordinary labyrinthine inside for her, her vagina with all these blind pockets and pouches. And she worked out in a series of very ingenious experiments involving <laughs> taking prosthetic duck vaginas to a duck farm. <laughs> And testing them out, and she worked out that because the the the, the 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 these the the male's penis would get caught in these blind patches if she wasn't compliant and wasn't inviting him in and choosing her male that they'd just get caught in these in in her labyrinth and wouldn't fertilize her eggs. Whereas her chosen mate, she could open up the lumen of her vagina because she's capable of laying an egg and doing so, and therefore allowing her chosen mate to fertilize. And of course, this accounts for why coercive sex 
accounts for so few actual fertilized eggs, which had been, an, you know, had been a quandary previously to, 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 to scientists. So she rescued the reputation of the female duck. You know, she's no longer a victim. She's able, she's, she's carried on, she, she's able to choose the paternity of her egg. And, and so, you know, I, I just thought that's just an amazing story. I love that story, but also I love that it's brought us onto disappearing vaginas and also potentially onto the dolphin's clitoris, which I really want you to tell us about. So first of all, the disappearing vaginas, then the clitoris, which for ages nobody believed was even existing in animals. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, the case of the missing vaginas, that's the subheader in my book. It's just because no one had looked at vaginas before. Like they just hadn't. They just were all like spellbound by the huge the morphological diversity of penises and wax lyrical for years about all this extraordinary penile diversity out there. But nobody bothered to look at vaginas. They just assumed that females just had simple tubes, you know. That And, and also just that we're just like these passive recipients for male sperm and we've got no influence over the, the great sperm race, you know, that we always hear about. You know, it turns out you know, there's some recent research says that, that in the end, it's the female, it's the egg that chooses which male wins the race. And, you know, all these amazing things I found out, like sperm don't even have the wherewithal to travel, <laughs> do the race themselves without females, a process called capacitation, which, by the way, we know nothing about because no one studied it, because it happens inside a female. You know, I mean, it's just, I think there's just so much amazing information out there that we have yet to, to learn by, by actually giving the, putting the female under the same scrutiny as the male. And of course, the clitoris is, is one of these, uh, you know, great, um, examples because, I mean, I mean, it is actually comical. I, I, I think it's actually comical how, <laughs> how the clitoris has just sort of been sort of, you know, proposed and then lost <laughs> in textbooks over the years. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, no, somebody found it. No, then, then it's been lost again. And anyway, just, it was, and then, and then loads of, um, scientists then, because of the sort of, that they, they, they sort of suggested that females only, uh, you know, didn't didn't evolve their own orgasms, and the only reason why why there is any form of female sexual pleasure is we have the male to thank for that because there's this sort of development homology with the penis, and so if it wasn't for males and their penises, we wouldn't even have sexual pleasure. So we should be really grateful to males for that. But of course, you know, when you start looking at um, clitoral diversity. It's astonishing. It's just as much as, as there is for the penis. And of course, that suggests that it's under selective pressure. It's, it's, it's evolving for certain functions and, and pleasure is one of those functions. Um, there's a, you know, I think it was Desmond Morris who, who claimed that only female, human females were capable of orgasms in the animal kingdom. And, and I think there's an awful lot of female animals out there who would disagree with that. You know, not least of all, um, there's, uh, the, the bonobos, the female bonobos that, uh, have managed to overthrow the patriarchy through ecstatic same sex frittage. You know, so I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sexual pleasure. And, and of course, you know the, the the female scientists that have studied this that I've spoken to. You know theorize that it's a, it's an it's a mechanism for female choice. You know the sort of the, the pleasure is is one of the ways that that allows a female to choose choose the male that, that fertilizes her egg. And dolphins, dolphins, are, oh yeah, and dolphin. We've just you asked me specifically about dolphin clitoris and the the brilliant Patricia Brennan, one of the 
one of the animals that she's recently uh, d- dissected is is uh, is the dolphin, and 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 she's she's certain that that has a fully functional clitoris. It's morphologically identical to humans. It's all the same sort of cells that you'd expect that derive pleasure. So it's great news for the female dolphin, right? <laughs> Excellent, Aina. You want to get in there? Yeah, I just want to go back just to finish off you, you, the duck and things that you were saying in the answer to my last question. It was that that when you were talking about the duck's curly whirly penis and everyone saying, God, I never saw that. Just to point out that most birds don't have a penis. It would be very difficult to fly with all this stuff hanging out of you. But in fact, swans and ducks do and they have it folded up inside them. So you don't, even if you get one, you don't because Richard Collins on our radio programme with Derek, he's he did his PhD in swans and he used to have to stimulate the male swans to get them to take out their penis so that he could find out whether they were male or female. I was out on field work with them once I didn't know. Some poor man with his child came along, he didn't know where to look. This carry-on going on in the park in Bushy Park in Dublin. And the other thing I think which is, which is quite a different thing is coercive sex and you say there's hardly that hardly results in any in any um, fertilised eggs. In humans that's not the case and you know people who have had coercive sex humans who have had that have in an awful lot of cases ended up with children so I think we should recognise that because that that's a very important thing to say about humans because everybody isn't a duck and there are different result, you know different reactions to sex in different animals so just to just to make that point in actual fact what you were saying about um about the dolphins I, I i was looking at what you were talking about there where in fact um you know we're going to end up soon that there are lots of cases you have um, described where males are not required at all or males are only required for the one thing and then get rid of them. And you have a wonderful story about the albatrosses on Hawaii. These albatrosses who shack up together, um, they, they, they have two women looking after the egg because, you know, they're much, they're much happier doing this than having a male and a female. And they're not all lesbian, obviously, but but um, a lot of them are and it works very well. So um, maybe you could tell us about these albatrosses because that's a great yarn too. Yeah, I was amazed by the albatross story. Um, I went to Hawaii to investigate it because I, I, I wanted to sort of see it with my own eyes, really. And it was just absolutely fantastic. It's basically, it, it's it's not that the females are choosing male, uh, choosing other females over males. It's that there's there's basically a shortage of males. And, and so... It's a new colony in Kayana Point, and it's been studied for like 50 years. Um, and obviously, albatross are identical, and they're also known for, a mo- for, mo- for monogamy um, and f- for forming long, long-standing bonds. Because it's really, you know, if you... Albatross, it, it's, it's, it's a tough job raising the chick because it takes a long time to mature. So you've got to have two, two parents to tag team that because it takes sort of six months before the chick will fledge, you know. So you definitely got to have two committed parents for that. But on this colony in Kiana Point, um, they've discovered that that thirty percent of the of the couples are female female, and and this came as a total shock because. Um, but it explains why that they they found that um, that some of the nests had these super clutches and that they had two eggs in them, and they couldn't work out why because. You know, it's impossible for for a female albatross to lay two eggs, and so for a long time this had been a mystery, and 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 um, and scientists had come up with all sorts of ludicrous explanations as to why there were two eggs in a, in a nest. And then this wonderful woman, Lindsay Young, came along one day, and she went, "Well, maybe we should just check to see whether the couples are a male and female." You know, I mean, perhaps they're two females. So she did. She she got she did you know got feathers from each of the the 60 nests 
and and did DNA tests on them and found that a third of them were female-female couples. And she said to me that she did lab work three times because she couldn't believe the results. And this is actually... This is a, a very common theme amongst lots of the scientists who are who are challenging these preconceptions that they've had to really do the most the most exemplary science in order to be understood and to prove their point. But yeah, she found a third of the the the, the couples were female female, and basically there's a shortage of males um, because the females are more pioneering than the males. They tend to forge these new colonies, and with less males about, the females are. Basically, you know, using using other albatross husbands as sperm donors and then shacking up with another female and happily raising a chick together. And I met one and some of them are enormously successful. I met one albatross um, who um, who'd been with her partner, a female uh, for 17 years. They'd had nine chicks and three grand chicks, you know, never the same sperm donor, but always the same partner because they got on. It worked, it worked out for them. And they did all the same lovey-dovey stuff that the, the heterosexual albatross partners did, all the cosy nuzzling and, you know, that'll release birdie oxytocin and, and make them feel all loved up and, and, and communicate well. And, and I, I found this just a wonderful story because I think it just goes to show the flexibility of these roles in nature and, 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 you know, that we're not sort of, you know, sex and, and sexual behavior. It's not this sort of deterministic thing of like you're male and you behave like that and you're female, you behave like that. There's just this enormous plasticity. And I, and I think that's, that's really heartening because, you know, the world is an ever changing place. And, you know, to understand that there is this ability to adapt is, is really important. Can I just also ask you to bust a couple of the myths? I mean, it's so much. We could probably do like three podcasts on this because there's so much in your book. I'm sure you agree, <laughs> Inna. But one of the things that you bust is the female passivity thing that we kind of started with. So there's a great line where you talk about um, how the spotted hyena would laugh in your face at that and then bite, bite your face off, actually. that's that's I can hear your... Your dog. It's my dog, it's, yeah. Is it a bitch? It's, it's a male dog. He's just like, so, okay, so it's not a bitch. Involved. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um, tell me a bit about that, about this idea of the female passive animal and how many amazing examples you found of the, quite the opposite. Yeah, this, this idea of female passivity actually goes all the way back to Aristotle, I discovered. I mean, it's as old as zoology itself. Aristotle is the grandfather of zoology. I reckon Darwin read it in Aristotle's on the, on the, on the nature of animals, you know, I, so I think it's just, you know, and, and this idea comes from the fact that, that from, from the difference between eggs and sperm, because eggs are big, sedentary, allegedly, but passive and 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 sperm are uh, active and mobile and and thrusting and and all of these things so this this is where these stereotypes come from i mean it's such a sort of basic <laughs> definition but it's and it and it's felt right to to generations of zoologists but but it it just isn't females are not passive they are just as as strategic as males and and as dominant and aggressive and competitive, you know, I mean, in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I mean, you know, I, yeah, you mentioned that the female hyena, I mean, she's she's a badass bitch. I mean, she's, you know, the fee, you, you really wouldn't, you know, the female hyena is the is the is 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 more dominant than the male. They 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 um and they're, they're extremely promiscuous. As it turns out, you know, this, this idea that females are, are passive and chaste and, and it's the males that, that, that win the female. Um, actually, it turns out, you know, females have, 
you know, just as strategic sexually. And that strategy often includes mating with multiple males. The hyenas were case in point, but you know, take songbirds. I mean, this was one of the stories that blew my mind. You know, you see songbirds, all manner of songbirds, and you have the male and the female, and they build a nest together. And, you know, again, they seem to be the the very sort of, you know, epitome of, 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 of monogamy. But it turns out there's a huge difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. And actually, when this amazing scientist, Patricia Goati, she actually did DNA fingerprint test, DNA testing on clutches of, they were actually bluebird eggs was the, the first one she did. And that was in the 1980s. And she found that each nest had several different fathers, you know, and when, when she made that discovery, um, she was told by the male ornithological establishment that the only reason that could be correct was because the females had been raped. And that was the only explanation for that. And, and she, she it took other ornith- uh, female ornithologists putting um radio trackers on female songbirds and actually following them and watching them going into neighboring male territories and soliciting sex from their neighbors to understand that that females were were actively seeking um sex and so it was then finally it was admitted and that this then sparked what's been described as a polyandry revolution where we now understand that Multiple mating is a female strategy that exists for a number of reasons um, in, in everything from, from, from lions to, um, to languors to, to fruit flies. You know, and it, it, it's not saying that all females are choosing to mate multiply. I just want to make that clear. But there's a very large section of, of animals that do. So we are just as strategic and dominant and aggressive and active as males. I want to ask you about another myth, the myth of maternal instinct, that that is every every female has that, because that's another myth you bust in the book as well. Yeah, this was this was quite a personal one for me because I've, I've never been particularly maternal. I never wanted to have children myself and I thought I was a bit of a freak. But it turns out that this idea of and, and there's this idea, Darwin says, you know, that the females are more maternal, the, the maternal ones. And and there's this idea that all females were the same or all imbued with maternal instinct and and all mothers are the same and there's no variation amongst mothers which is just ludicrous i mean it's just an insane idea but but it was was has has been believed for a long time and and actually it turns out that you know, female, there's actually, there's, they, they discovered last year, this amazing scientist, Catherine Dulac in Harvard, who found this, there's actually a switch for nurturing in the, in, in the, in the, in the brain. And, and actually it's in brains of both males and females. So this switch. Thank you. Yeah. And, and actually, <laughs> they just know what triggers it, but it, it exists in both males and females. And, and I think this is really heartening because, you know, I know some, it's fantastically nurturing males. I think it's, you know, I think, you know, and, and but obviously female mammals have an extra kind of whack when of, of giving birth and, and nursing, which, which gives this sort of flood of oxytocin, which sort of soups up the maternal response. But so we don't, we're not born with this maternal instinct. There's a parental instinct that gets triggered um, and, 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 you know, and that exists in all of us, which e- even me, apparently... Which, which I think was being triggered by my dog, actually, because I'm, I'm very, very maternal towards him. <laughs> but um, 
I would just like to, I suppose we're coming to the end and I just want to, to finish by saying an old one like me is very delighted at your whole example of the thing that ourselves and killer whales have in common, that, that humans and killer whales have in common and nobody and a few other whales, but that's about it. So that, you know, it's not all about sex and having babies. There's more to it than that, isn't there? Yes, there's a, I, there's a woman of a certain age. This this was probably spoke to me. This story spoke to me the most the most uh, most loudly because, yeah, it turns out so so menopause is really rare in the animal kingdom, and and humans were long considered to be these sort of menopausal freaks for for actually living beyond our ovaries, right? And um, there were all sorts of dispiriting theories as to why women might do that, um, you know, including that we were just propped up by modern medicine and we should really just be bowing out along with our ovaries in our mid-40s, which was really depressing. Well, mind you, but we, anyway, did, we did, we did in, in Stone Age times, people didn't live past the age of 30, so there might be something to that. But anyway, what benefit does it confer by living longer? This is the point you want to make. Yeah, but if you, if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, then females still that, that, that don't have, have medicine, then, then that sort of pours cold water on that theory. But what we found is, is that, and also then, we've also been supported by this research in orcas, in killer whales, which are um, social cetaceans. They're basically souped-up dolphins, and they live in these um, big social groups called pods. And it turns out that the it was long thought that the leaders of their community, it was assumed that they were males and that there was a harem of females and the males are in charge or whatever, Turns out the leaders of the community, their sort of skilled hunting community, are not males. They're not only females, but they're the postmenopausal grannies. You know, so so are following the menopause, these female orcas are not disappearing out of society and losing their purpose. They're out the front leading it. You know, with their extraordinary empathy and wisdom that comes from from their their long lives and their their extraordinary brains that are able to con- um, remember all this sort of extraordinary ecological knowledge, and and they're the leaders of their hunting community. So uh, I, I love that story. Yeah, and they they do it because they 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 have so much knowledge and they're respected. I mean, elephants do it too, but the poor old granny elephants are still mammy elephants as well, even though they mightn't have a have a baby as frequently as their younger siblings. They they still do are able to have babies in their old age. But elephants with lots of knowledge and wisdom are the ones that are respected. And again, you're looking at a matriarchal tribe there where it's led by by female elephants and the older ones lead the tribe and have all the knowledge of the water holes. And of course, some in a, in a world which is so rapidly changing and in Africa where there's so much drought, to be able to remember where the water hole was 30 years ago, I mean, an elephant never forgets, is certainly something that is turning out to be true. But I'm just taking a poor elder Darwin, I'm sure he'd love to be dug up and be given all this research on DNA analysis. He didn't have any DNA analysis. This didn't come in. It was easy for people to say, well, they must be two women and that egg was, was laid by this one and that one because they can do DNA analysis and stick it to them. But I mean, DNA analysis, it hardly was around when I was in college, never mind in Darwin's time. So, I mean, I think to go back to, to be nice to Darwin, I mean, he, he had not the benefit of the huge amount of science that that, um, that, that we nowadays take for granted. Did you think the analysis should that's how you find anything out? But that's how you remember when that wasn't there. So like it's a, it's a, it's a huge advance and it has opened up huge amount of doors of all sorts of scientific research. So you know your book actually you know you know shows all of that. It runs the gamut of 
all of the different arrangements between things, men changing into women, women changing into men, all sorts of arrangements of life and parthenogenesis. In other words, you know, having children without any male influence at all. And you're saying we'd probably, you know, more and more um, animals are being discovered doing this, particularly in zoos. But I think the point that you make about a lot of the studies that were done were on captive animals, were on lab mice who had been bred to be docile, on captive animals in zoos who are not in their natural habitat and conclusions drawn from circumstances that are not in the wild, which is where the animals actually belong, how more difficult it is to do research in the wild. You know, as people have more resources or are able to do this, they're able to turn on their head the stuff that was discovered by about lab mice or about zoo animals because you're actually now going out into the habitat where they lived. That these arrangements of zoos and things do change the, the, the environmental behaviour and change their environment and their behaviour as a consequence. So there you go. Bitch is a wonderful book, Lucy. And I was really delighted to read it. I mean, I, I want to say, Lucy, that um, I'm not really interested too much in animals. And Aina is someone who is absolutely has all the knowledge and fascination. So it was two interesting people reading your book. I absolutely loved it too, despite my sort of ignorance in a lot of these matters, because I hope I can explain this um, correctly. I've had a long feeling about um, being a woman, you know, having thought about it a long time over many years and presenting a women's podcast, you know, about what being a woman is and who we are and what society tells us we are. And we have to constantly challenge that. And sometimes the things that we're being told just don't sit well with me. And I feel like, am I crazy? Because that doesn't fit with my experience. And I think what I found quite moving and about your book was that it seemed just explain myself to me in a way that reading all these other books about feminism and that are not about animals that are about human women hadn't really got and I just I really want to thank you for that because through exploring the animal kingdom you have absolutely I think explained about the diversity of woman and why it is ridiculous to try and pin any labels on us and men for that matter because there's so much about male animals in the book as well that that doesn't fit with the stereotypes that we've been sold. And so, I mean, I, that's why I think your book is absolutely game changing and revolutionary. And I, I really I commend you so highly on it. Oh, I'm so thrilled. That's that really means a lot. I, I you know, the conclusion that I I came to is, is that, you know, these you know, we always look to the animal kingdom for guidance. We can't help. You know, so I think what I want people to understand is, is the, is the huge diversity out there, because I think not understanding the diversity and 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 the point of that diversity being that that is that is how evolution operates we can't we don't have an evolving system without diversity and that this sort of overlap this sort of idea that males and females are really distinct we're actually the more we're finding is we're more there's more similarities than there are differences you know there's a huge overlap in the variation of how females are and the variation of males and there's a, this huge overlap in the middle and and really, I think we're all striving for equality. You know, that's what we want. You know, we want females, women to be recognised as equal to men. And, you know, to understand that really we're made of the same stuff, the same genes, the same hormones, the same bodies, the same brains, the same biology. So treat us the same, you know, and stop pigeonholing us and, and telling us what we're meant to be like, because it's just not true and it's not fair. Do you really think that? I mean, do you really think that we're the same? I mean, if, if the world was ruled by women rather than men, would we be looking at the news that we're looking at at the moment? I mean, do you think that if it was the boot was on the other foot and women had been in charge, we'd have the same 
turmoil in the world. I mean, looking back over the centuries, all of the turmoil has been caused by, by men, essentially, because they're the ones that want to have these new territories or overthrow places and things like this. Now, women were always in a subordinate role. But I mean, if, if as you say, we're all we're all have all of this variation, we're all the same in a sense, nobody's superior, inferior. Would the world be the same place if, if, if women had the amount of um, power and importance, authority that, that, that males have. You know, I think that's a really interesting point. But I, th- I think the thing is, 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 is an anthropologist who describes humans as biocultural ex-apes. So we are an extraordinary species. And I think you can't separate the influence of culture on our biology. We know that culture influences biology. So I think that ma- males being taught that they're meant to be aggressive and dominant and competitive... Whether, however much we try as parents not to do that and to be open-minded, but society on the whole still teaches these sort of outdated Darwinian patriarchal stereotypes and imposes them on females and males. And actually, if males understood that they could just as equally be nurturing and, you know, females can be wrong, you know, I think, I think, so I, I think that culture has a big impact on, on why we're in the pickle that we're in today, right? And, and, so I, and, and also, I, the other thing I think is, is that males and females, we are made of the same stuff. So I really do believe that culture has a big impact on, in making differences. I do think that females, female mammals, when, the, when you go through um, childbirth, there, the, the brain is fundamentally changed by that process and, and is wired for empathy. And so I do think that there is something about female leaders that can also bring this, this empathy to it. But we're all, but I also think that males can have nurturing triggered in them and, and bring that to the table as well. So, you know, I take on board what you're saying, but I think the culture has a huge impact on that. Okay. And, like I said, I think we could talk for hours. And can I, I'm fascinated whether you learnt lots of things from this book because I consider you as like an encyclopedic knowledge about all animals, male and female. I, it's amazing if you've learned loads of stuff from Lucy's book. Well, I suppose I have and I haven't in the sense oh. that... That I did know about all of the different things. I didn't know the particular examples. I wasn't aware of the moles, for example, and the ins and outs of that. But and I wasn't aware of the corkscrew-shaped um, vagina in a duck, particularly. But you know the idea that that female birds were unfaithful, if you like, or they they had cuckolded their, their their partners and encouraged them to help them rear the young. I mean, we did know those kind of things. So I mean, what you have done is take, and we did know that whales had menopauses. I mean, a lot of this stuff does does trickle down, and we have had a radio program for the last twenty five years, and you know every week we interview researchers about things. So you know a lot of this was fleshed out for me by your wonderful writing, by your actual examples, by your humour, the way, so I mean, while you might know this boring fact, the way you had described it made it like riveting and wonderful and you don't look at the world at all. I wonder what those, those pigeons are up to now actually and what have you and this sort of thing. But um, I suppose in a way, you took some of the concepts that I did know already and really, you know, sell it out there because, you know, I'm a scientist, a boring old thing. But I mean, people like Roisin, who who just want to read a scientific book without having yourself bored to tears because it's all so technical. This is a great book for that. And as a consequence, there's no point in being a wonderful scientist if you can't tell anybody what you've found out. And I mean, who do you need to tell other scientists? Yes, but the, but the world at large as well. And your skill in telling the world at large all of this information is great. Well done, Lucy. Thank you. <laughs> so 
Lucy, final word to you. What do you hope people get from it? Uh, well, I, I think I think my, my, my hope is, is that it makes us understand that being female is a hugely varied experience. We and we there's no reason that we shouldn't be considered equal to males, you know, in, in every sense, because, you know, we're, we're, we're more alike than we are different. And, and, and you know, I, I, I hope that it stops females from feeling pigeonholed if they don't feel like they've got a maternal instinct or freakish if they don't have a maternal instinct or you know or they're they don't they don't fit this sort of stereotype you know that there's 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 room for this variety and there's a point to all this variety because variety is 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 what evolution thrives on Brilliant. I totally agree. And again, congratulations. I mean, we can't say enough. I think Ian and I have how wonderful it is. And even if you're like me and animals hold not much interest to you, you will pick up this book and you won't be able to stop reading it. And there are so many brilliant lines. Lucy, no wonder we didn't even start talk about your comedic sort of past, but you you did start <laughs> off in comedy and it jumps off the page. It's hilarious. Some of the stuff in this book is just so funny. Ana and Lucy, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Great. Thank oh, you thank you much. so much. Yeah. I loved it. Aina, it was just wonderful to talk to you about this. Um, a real privilege. Thank you. That's all we have time for. Do go and buy that book because it's fantastic and there's so much learning in it and we only sort of touch the surface. There's so much more. Do get in touch with us. Tell us what you think on social at IT Women's Podcast or by email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Thanks so much to the brilliant Aina Nilauna and to Lucy Cook. The book is called Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.